0: Compass Media Networks, this is America's First News, this weekend with your host, Gordon Deal. The politics of housing. I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Here's what's coming up this hour. A new look at data is suggesting that where we build homes helps explain America's political divide. Hear the exclusive story. Also, is your company starting to use generative artificial intelligence? Hear the right and wrong ways to implement it. Plus, if you think using cash doesn't count as spending, you believe in what's called girl math. We'll explain the logic. And tis the season to be stressed. How can we manage everything that's going on?
1: During the holidays, we create greater expectations. And that comes from goodness in our heart. But we think, oh, you know, I've got to bake those five dozen cookies for the class party. I've got to do this for my neighbor. I've got to do this. For for
0: work. Licensed counselor Lee Richardson on managing the stress of the holidays. Well, since real estate developers are known for enjoying money, one might expect them to be cranking out more homes to take advantage of higher prices. But though prices are hitting record highs, available homes remain at record lows. Andrew Van Dam, data columnist at the Washington Post, did a deep dive on the politics of housing. Andrew, explain it.
2: To set this all up we began with a federal census data product known as the building Permits survey. You've heard it before for things like housing starts or housing permitted but recently uh, census expanded it to monthly data on every county in the country almost. So we can now get a really good picture of exactly where is building housing, where is struggling to do so and how that uh, relates to some other factors in general we do find that housing uh is related to population growth but when you dig a bit deeper uh, you find another thing which is that there is a bit of a political divide in who's building housing and who's not how so in general a red county is going to be producing about twice as many housing permits per resident as a blue county is and this is true even if you look only at communities of the same size or population density, even if you look only at red counties in blue states, they're the ones that are producing all the housing. And uh, that was a little bit surprising to me. Uh, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think that there's something special about a Republican government or a Republican local government that would lead to more housing permits. Yeah. But uh, as we dug deeper, we found what I think is a fascinating reason for all this.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, so why would red states be doing that at seemingly twice the rate that, I'm sorry, counties, red counties twice the rate as blue counties?
2: Okay, so this is a little bit crazy. I came in, start with a ton of theories about NIMBYism, zoning, Mm -hmm. environmental regulation, that kind of thing, right? And you would assume that red counties are going to have less of that, and it's true. But really, when we called Chris Herbert, uh, he runs the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies. He was like, yes, that's all true. But really, it's all about land availability. In general, the thing that determines housing isn't any of this ancillary stuff. It's just how much dirt in a community do you have that's buildable? Hmm. And that means it's not covered with mountains or rivers, lakes, oceans, that kind of thing. And in general, a place with uh, more land is going to be able to build more. And um, that is going to be related to all these other things we're seeing. For example, uh, if a area has less available land, then of course, they're going to have more land use regulation. They're going to have ways to more fairly apportion or to uh, protect your investment in this scarce land. And so, in general, um, with just this one variable, uh, land availability, you can predict how, regu- how strict regulations are going to be. You can predict how uh, much housing prices are going to increase. All these different things just boil down to this simple question of land availability. Now, uh, your next question is probably going to be, wait a minute. Why do red communities of the same size have more available land than blue communities? Yes. (laughs) Stop looking (laughs) at my notes. I have them hidden. (laughs) Apologies, Gordon. But uh, that uh, is really interesting. That was uh, the thing that um, got me very excited about what I would kind of call this land availability determinism. And that is that um in general if land is less available then all else being equal it's going to be more expensive and who can afford more expensive land well in the united states that is obviously the professional classes education educated folks who given our current political divide in the current political climate those folks are breaking strongly for democrats and so, uh, in general, this is a small effect, but it accumulates over time and across geography. The more expensive a place is, the more likely a Democrat's going to be able to afford it. And so, this actually helps explain a phrase that I'm sure we've all heard, which is that Democrats are coastal elites. And you wouldn't think that there's anything inherently democratic about an ocean it's not that the atlantic or the pacific are pushing someone left politically but what they're doing is inherently a coastal city is going to have less land available than an inland city like dallas is and if there's less land then in general it's going to be accessible to professional classes they're going to be democrats etc etc and so you have a situation where Uh, These land-restricted communities, these communities that struggle to build, just tend to be more Democrat from this uh, simple perspective of land availability.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Andrew Van Dam, data columnist at The Washington Post, Did you know traditional bedsheets harbor as much bacteria as a toilet seat? The germs in your sheets can cause acne, allergies, stuffy noses, and other gross ailments. Fears, though, that you can put to bed with Miracle-Made bedsheets. Miracle-Made uses silver-infused fabrics inspired by NASA that are thermoregulating to keep you at a perfect temperature all night. Miracle-Made is self-cleaning, self-cooling, luxurious, eco-friendly bedding designed to protect your skin for more restorative rest. My wife and I love them. Now, my listeners can have a clean night's sleep while saving over 40% and sleep cool all summer and warm all winter. The website, try Miracle. Dot com slash Gordon. Claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% at checkout. Miracle-Made products are backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Again, the website, TryMiracle.com slash Gordon. TryMiracle.com slash Gordon to save big. You can sleep cool, comfy, and clean. Miracle-Made bedding, NASA-inspired for out-of-this-world comfort. Sleep clean with Miracle. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Google says it has a zero tolerance policy for child abuse content, but the scanning process can sometimes go awry, labeling innocent individuals as abusers. It's a story by Kashmir Hill, technology reporter at The New York Times. Kashmir, what have you found?
3: Yeah, so Google and really all the technology companies are always kind of looking for exploitative or abusive images of children. And usually they're looking for known known images, they'll flag them, they report them to this nonprofit that then will tell police about them. And Google a few years ago developed an algorithm that can actually that can actually identify photos, these abusive kind of photos of children that have never been seen before. It's an AI that was trained, you know, learned from known images. And so if it sees basically a naked child, you know, in a video or a photo, it will flag it and report it and they'll often shut down that person's account because they assume that they're a child abuser. And so what my story about is about is about somebody who is innocent, who kind of caught, got caught up in that.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. So explain that. You found this uh, family in Australia, like, like the mom, like her, her Google accounts have been almost like completely vanished because of this. What happened?
3: Yeah, so her name's Jennifer Watkins, and one day she gets an email from YouTube that says her channel's getting shut down, and she she didn't really take note of it because she doesn't use YouTube, but she has a Samsung tablet that her kids use, and it's signed into her Google account, and they use YouTube. And so she ignored this first email, then she gets another email that says her whole YouTube account is getting shut down, and then all of a sudden, her Gmail stops working, oh and her access to Google Drive stops working, and she just loses access to all things Google. And that's when she starts paying attention because like many of us, she kind of has her life built around her email address and just everything connected to it stops working. And so that's when she kind of confronts her son and said, what did you do on mm-hmm. YouTube? Finds out that they thought it would be funny. They're seven years old um, to make a video of one of them dancing naked, and that got flagged, you know, as it should by this 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 AI as something that shouldn't be on the internet. Um, because it violates the laws in most countries to, to have any kind of nudity yeah. of children that you're putting on the internet. Um, but the consequences for her were pretty devastating. And she kept trying to appeal to Google saying, hey, this is my son's fooling around. You know, I'm not a child pornographer. Um, but she was really having no success getting her account back until she reached out to me.
0: Yeah, geez. We're speaking with Kashmir Hill, technology reporter at the New York Times. Her story is called How Your Child's Online Mistake Can Ruin Your Digital Life. So she seemed to, at least based on what I read in your story, get the runaround from Google or just kind of standard answers like, nope, it's a violation. So you get involved and then like a day later, her, her stuff is restored. Like, but it shouldn't be that difficult, right? I, I think that's kind of the point here.
3: Yeah, and this is not the first time I've covered a story like this. I mean, this has happened to other parents, you know, um, you know, uh, parents who have taken medical photos of their kids for their doctors and sent them uh, over email yeah. Um, Other kids, you know, doing this exact same thing, doing a stupid video of themselves naked because they don't they don't realize, you know, to them, their body isn't something that's illegal, that's illicit. They just think it's a funny prank, like mooning the camera. Um, And so this has happened before. And Google has said that it it tries to. Uh, It realizes how devastating it is to lose your Google account and that they do have this appeals process in place. Um, But I think it's really challenging for a company like Google. They're flagging millions of these kinds of images every year. Uh, And so, you know, there's probably a lot of people appealing. I just don't know how effective their their system is, but they say they're working on it.
0: Boy, All right. So in the meantime, uh, like this video which obviously we just shut down the, this YouTube account and all that. But, I mean, it's out there, right? I assume well, it's, it's in the hands of weirdos probably, or, right? I mean, that that's kind of the danger here too.
3: Well, Google said they actually flagged the video within seconds of it being oh. uploaded oh, and okay. that they immediately took it down and then they report it to this nonprofit that tracks these kinds of videos. So that video is now in this library of known images. And if anyone else ever posts it or share it, it will get it will oh, get flagged again and that person's okay. account will get yeah i mean it is quite a powerful system and and that's what makes these 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 stories tricky i think a lot of us do you want tech companies doing this you know trying to stop the spread of abusive images of children but we also don't want to get caught up in it you know because we took a photo of our our kid in the bathtub to share yeah. you know with <laughs> with our with our parents
0: thanks Kashmir Kashmir Hill technology reporter at the New York Times new research from Ohio State University finds the strain of inflation plus world affairs are adding to the other holiday time stressors to create a toxic mental health cocktail this time of year How to Manage, from this weekend's Jennifer Koshenka.
4: Yes, it's the season to be merry and bright, but it's also the season to be super stressed. And this year, in addition to the usual bustle of the holiday, many world affairs and national issues are also pressing down on us. How can we do a better job of managing holiday stress? Lee Richardson, professional counselor and founder of the Brain Performance Center, is here with some tips. Lee, what is stressing us out?
1: Well, I think we're stressing ourselves out. We during the holidays we create greater expectations, and that comes from goodness in our heart. But we think, oh, you know, I've 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 got to bake those five dozen cookies for the class party. I've got to do this for my neighbor. I've got to do this for for work. And then we hear we we keep thinking that it's a holiday. This should, this should be the greatest time of the year. And we hear what's, what's going on in the world. And so we're almost, you know, we're, we're beating a bell on both ends.
4: Are we stressing too much about money? And if we are, what can we do about that?
1: Well, we probably are. And the main thing that we can do <clears throat> is focus on what you can control. How you spend your money is your choice.
4: What about the headlines in the news that are just bombarding us, whether it's from things overseas or right here in the U.S.? How do we uh, kind of filter out that message and calm down?
1: Well, how, how much do you look at it? How much do you listen to it? Because I think, you know, during the COVID time, we got used to having that 24-7 news streaming because we felt such an urgent need for information. And, and some of us may still continue with that overabundance of information, and we may become reliant on it. So stop and ask, ask yourself, what do you need to know? I like to listen to the news in the morning, and then I'll listen to it on my on my in my car driving home. That's all I need. And so I encourage your listeners to stop and ask yourself, what do you really need to keep yourself knowledgeable?
4: We're speaking with Lee Richardson, professional counselor and founder of the Brain Performance Center. Of course, the holidays mean a lot of time spent with family. <laughs> what if it's family that is
1: stressing you out? Well, and many times it is. I'm amazed. I saw some statistics recently that you know about the percent of families that fight during the holidays. and a lot of times it's over family issues, our politics, our money. And uh, those the, typically those are the same fights that we have every year. And they're not—they're not getting any different. They're just getting older and older. And the older they get, the harder they become to resolve.
4: Speaking of family, a lot of people are pulled in many different directions by their family. Whether it's traveling to see someone or making some kind of appointments, how do you kind of manage your time?
1: I think that you have to—you have your number one goal has to be your self-care, because you to get through the holidays. And to be able to take care of your family and your friends, you've got to take care of yourself. And so when you think about what you want to do, what you can do, think about how you're going to be able to take care of yourself if you do that. If you're going to leave on a Friday at 5 o'clock and catch a plane, not roll in until after midnight for a a two-day trip, are you going to be in the moment when you get there? Are you going to be able to stay present and truly enjoy your time there?
4: Lee, you've used the word self-care many times in, in your answers. What are some other examples of, of self-care?
1: Well, and self-care to me has kind of evolved, and it's really turned into self-love. Because in the old days, you know, self-care was a glass of wine and Netflix. That's not self-care. What I've learned is self-love is really listening to your, to your body and listening to your brain. And if you need social connection, call a friend, meet a friend for a cup, a cup of coffee. If you need to get up and move, go exercise. If you need to just feel the sun on your shoulders, breathe some fresh air, get out and do that. Ask yourself, what does my body need right now? What does my head need right now? That is what self-care, self-love is all about.
0: That's this weekend's Jennifer Koshenka with Lee Richardson, licensed professional counselor and founder of the Brain Performance Center in Dallas. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. First weekend of December, coming up this half hour, how to actually avoid overspending during the holidays, plus proper ways to use AI at work and the not proper ways, plus when non-dating apps find you a partner and how to justify what they call girl math. We'll have that story in about 20 minutes. Well, perhaps no transaction is as fraught with emotion and stress as the purchase of a holiday gift. With the psychological stakes so high at the holidays, many of us spend beyond our gift-giving means. The obvious solution? Set a gift-giving budget and stick to it. But where to start Here's Dan Divise, personal finance reporter at USA Today. Dan, help us out.
5: I plan to overspend. I, I always plan to overspend. It's, it's an emotional time trying to buy gifts at the holidays. You never feel like you can spend enough. I, I personally am always feeling guilty. I, I feel like there, it isn't possible to buy too many gifts for the holidays, and so I'm one of those. I promise you I will overspend this year. <laughs> All right, so then you say,
0: listen, the next logical step, the solution here, just set a budget and stick to it. Uh, sounds great in principle, but not always easy to put into effect. What do you recommend here?
5: You know, where do you even start? Um, and I, I, I did some searching and found that a few sites that are good sites actually do offer some starting points for budgeting. Um, there's a company called ClearPoint, which is a nonprofit credit counselor. And they come up, came up with a really simple thing, which is maybe plan to spend 1.5% of your total annual income. So if you earn $75,000 a year, which is about the average American family, that works out to $1,125. And then you can use these little sliding buttons to allocate those funds. I'm thinking of gifts, but you might also throw a party or two. You might want to make a donation. You might be driving to to grandmother's house. You know, So it allows you to do all that. So that's a good start. I like the idea of ranking the recipients. Oh, Wired Magazine has a wonderful and wonderfully logical holiday gift calculator. It says you start out by inputting a budget and then there's all this math. You assign each of your loved ones a rank from one to 10 where 10 is your beloved partner and one is a nephew. You don't really care for that much. (laughs) And then you do some multiplication and basically you'd have to look up the math, but you figure out a way to allocate, you know, one X to that least loved nephew and 10 X to your partner or spouse. And it's a pretty good way to divvy up the money, and again it's it just it gives you a start and gives you some help
0: and to avoid awkwardness at holiday meals, let's not share that list No, do not let it fall. <laughs> pray into the wrong hands. It's almost like you need a performance review for for each recipient I well, mean you know, it was just it was a good year for the nephew who's normally weak, he goes from a one to a two <laughs> right? Oh, That's man. right like yeah. <laughs> We're speaking with Dan DeVizay, personal finance reporter at USA Today. His story is called Afraid of Overspending on Holiday Gifts, Set a Budget, and he's gotten pretty deep into how to do it. What was the uh, the 50-30-20 rule that you went through?
5: Oh, uh, NerdWallet, Kimberly Palmer uh, spoke about this. The idea here is that 50% of your take-home pay is needs. It just goes to cover stuff like food and shelter. 30% is quote-unquote wants, that's your Taylor Swift tickets, and 20%, the remainder, is to debt repayment and savings. So what Kimberly says is that 30% of wants, discretionary stuff, dinners out, theater, so forth, that's where you carve out your holiday budget. And the nice thing about that is, let's say you didn't spend months saving up to spend at the holidays. Most of us don't. Think about that 30% over the next couple of pay periods, and there's still time to take some of that money Don't go out to eat. Save it in a special bank account somewhere, and that becomes your your gift fund.
0: I was surprised that uh, you said at the tail end of your story that research suggests we prefer less costly presents.
5: (laughs) Well, think about how bad you feel if you show up at the gift-giving ceremony and get this incredible gift that's worth a ton of money from somebody and you didn't get them very much at all. And it's it's painful. <laughs> Nobody likes that feeling. And so, yeah, uh, I, I interviewed someone who has researched this. And she said that, in fact, you're probably happier overall if the gift you get is not all of that special because then you don't feel guilty about it.
0: Thanks, Dan. Dan Divise, personal finance reporter, at USA Today. Generative AI is offering many businesses in different industries the opportunity to make operations more efficient and productive, but the trending technology also carries its share of risks. Analysis from Rob Enderley, founder of the tech advisory firm The Enderly Group. Rob, what should we know?
6: Well, in, in, in most cases, the use is being connected to some type of productivity app. Um, they're either spinning it up as part of the Microsoft chat GPT co-pilot effort, Uh, or they're bringing in some type of custom program uh, tied to a particular function like um, call center or um, a salesforce support or customer support or something along those lines. It's been particularly effective in terms of of sales but it's also been effective in in helping uh, employees navigate the complexities of the of the firm but increasingly it's being used to create product uh, either programming uh, software, uh, or um, or some other kind of uh, product, because it can be used to you know to design physical objects. It can be used to write papers for you, or create presentations. Um, it's it's becoming pretty pretty versatile, uh, much more versatile than I think we thought it was going to be at this time.
0: All right. So, what are some of the don'ts here? What what, what you, should you not be doing if you're using generative AI in the workplace?
6: Well, one of the things you've got to be aware of is bias. The the um, um, the, these things are trained on various pools of, of data. Some are trained on the pile, which is the mass of public data that's out there. Uh, and that can contain a certain amount of bias and, and that bias may create problems uh, violating of you know either uh, state or federal laws uh, or uh, or company policies. And so you, you can't just let these things run and not review them you, if they create a particular piece of work you need to review it with a critical eye and make sure they haven't introduced a, a, a bias that, that disenfranchises a group of people um, or breaks a, breaks a law.
0: Yeah, copyright's a concern here too, right?
6: Um, well, yeah, the copy, uh, it, it depends. The, the, right now, the courts have mostly thrown out the copyright challenges. Recognize that these AIs kind of learn the way we learn, and, and so this is a, a really slippery slope with regard to copyright, but the, but the law is not yet settled. And so that so that does mean it's it's uh, there is a risk uh, in theory, much like a person learns by reading the works of others, that's how uh, AIs learn, and, and from a much larger pool of work. So that so, pulling it back down to to a copyright violation becomes more difficult. On the other hand, if you said, okay, I want a book a Harry Potter book that hasn't been written yet, well, that's probably going to violate intellectual property someplace. It's the the the. Uh, and so you've got you you've got to make sure that you're not intentionally creating a, a, a piece that would violate, would potentially violate copyright mm-hmm. and do recognize this is unsettled law so the so the uh, so the, the the rules surrounding these programs are going to change a lot in the next decade you need and you need to be conscious
0: of that we're speaking with Rob Enderley, founder and principal analyst at The Enderly Group. We're talking about using generative AI in the workplace, some of the do's and don'ts. What about uh, disclosure that you've actually used AI?
6: Well, that's the advice, is is that when you've used AI for something that you disclose it, uh, that's probably an overabundance of caution. I mean, much like if you use a ghostwriter uh, to, to create something, you should disclose the use of the ghostwriter, but not everybody does. Um, the the uh, the legal implications surrounding the lack of disclosure are also not settled. So, the advice is better be better to be safe than sorry, and, and disclose if you don't need to disclose, and you disclose, you're not in any trouble. But if you if you fail to disclose and you needed to disclose, uh, then it could be uh, could be difficult. So create difficulty. So the so the advice is. Use caution and and, um, and the, the disclosing that you're using an AI shouldn't cause you any harm. And if it does cause you harm, perhaps you shouldn't be using the AI in the first, first place.
0: Thanks, Rob. Rob Enderly, founder and principal analyst at The Enderly Group. Countless dating apps promise to connect you with a soulmate or a fling, right? But some intrepid daters scout for romance on other sites from language learning platform Duolingo to the film review site Letterboxd. It's a story by Anne-Marie Alcantara, personal technology reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Anne-Marie, what happened on Duolingo?
7: So there were two people who, you know, were just on Duolingo, Rob and Amanda. Rob was learning Spanish, and Amanda was learning Mandarin. And on Duolingo, there's like a leaderboard where you can see, you know, who's doing well, that sort of thing. And Rob saw that Amanda was learning Mandarin. Started congratulating her and then they, you know, quickly found each other on Facebook, started video chatting, and now the two are married.
0: <laughs> Jeez. I guess what you you can you just look somebody up, right? I mean, if they, they seem interesting or you share an interest, look for them on Facebook. <laughs> this was one way to start, I guess.
7: Basically, yeah, you can look them up on Facebook. A different couple I spoke to that met on Letterboxd, uh, they looked each other up on Twitter and then, you know, eventually made their friendship. Moved towards uh, texting, and now they're also dating. But yeah, Megan and Digby met on Letterbox, the movie review site.
0: Wow! So th- this obviously was not the intent of these sites, but uh, as somebody I think referred to in your story, it kind of makes sense, right? You have a you have a, obviously a, a common interest here on, on these sites.
7: Yeah, that's precisely it. It's it's people. You know, you're on Yelp because you want to. You know, review a restaurant or check something out new. You're on Strava because you want to work out and you're into cycling and hiking, or you're on Duolingo because you want to learn a language. You're obviously there for an interest that, you know, speaks to you. And so finding someone there that also has a similar interest seems incredibly, you know, likely. And it makes sense that you would be easily matched with someone there.
0: Hmm. I'm speaking with Anne Marie Alcantara, personal technology reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Her story is called People Are Ditching Dating Apps to Find Love on. Duolingo uh, how about Yelp you how would somebody connect with someone else on on Yelp
7: so on Yelp there's a lot of social features that you can connect with each other you know you can compliment someone on their review send them a direct message but in the case of the couple that I spoke to um, they met by basically uh, Mel thanked Terry for a review she posted and then they both started going to Yelp events in their town in their city, and they met there. They started meeting up in ch- with each other in real life, and were strictly friends until Terry got a Mother's Day card from Mel, and now they're they're married. <laughs> uh, that's something.
0: I-, I mean, are there fewer risks to meet somebody on a common interest site versus, say, a traditional dating app?
7: I'm not sure there's fewer risks, but at least there's a chance that you know that that person you know is a foodie or they're really into cycling or whatever interest, you know, whatever app you're on, you at least have that in common and know that you guys share that same value.
0: What do do the sites themselves say? Did any of them offer some sort of reaction?
7: Most of them are just as surprised as we are (laughs) that people are finding love on these apps. They don't really track it, and if anything, they're just, yeah, like, you know, I guess it happens, and we're happy it does, but, you know... We're not about that. We're not necessarily a dating site. You're here to learn languages yeah. or log your workouts.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Anne Marie. Anne Marie Alcantara, personal technology reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Coming up next, the logic of if you pay cash, it's free. Hey, it's Gordon Deal, your personal Hello Fresh holiday helper. Seriously, make your holiday festivities stand out with Hello Fresh with over 45 scrumptious recipes that will impress at your party this season. Indulge in the joy of cooking made simple. HelloFresh delivers right to your door so it's convenient and saves time. And with the very specific step-by-step instructions from HelloFresh, it's easy for someone with zero kitchen skills like me to follow along. Make it the tastiest holiday season yet with HelloFresh. HelloFresh lets me ditch the store run. No stressing about running back and forth or worrying about forgetting something. Their farm-fresh and pre-portioned ingredients make cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Go to HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree and use code GordonFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree with the code Gordon Free. Unleash the tasty seasonal flavors from America's number one meal kit. Order HelloFresh today at HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree. We'll finish with this. Many Americans are embracing the latest personal finance pastime justifying discretionary purchases with artful arithmetic. Some call it girl math or boy math. The Wall Street Journal says millions of consumers are gleefully touting their twisty spending logic on social media, often tongue-in-cheek. Sparrows Tattoo Company of Mansfield, Texas posted on Facebook, tattoos are basically free because you pay for it once and have it till you die, which means it only costs cents a day when you divide total cost over how long you'll have it. Here's another from TikTok.
7: Okay, this one's a little bit weird, but my husband and I share credit cards and a bank account, but somehow every time that he puts down his card with his name on it, like that's free and he paid.
0: Josh Benavides, a 47-year-old in Juneau, Alaska, bought a $400 exercise bike after he tore his ACL, but was concerned about the price. Now he says if he rides it 400 times, it only costs a dollar a ride. And since he's used it about 4,000 times, he says now he's riding for a dime. Some of the rules of this logic... Eugene, cash doesn't really count as spending. Prices should always be rounded down. Savings are earnings. And anything under $5 is free. And to others, a refund is free money. That'll do it for this hour. Thanks for listening to This Weekend. I'm Gordon Deal.